Good evening, everyone. So we are in the book of 2 Samuel tonight, 2 Samuel chapter 9. So let me invite you to turn there with me. It's page 260 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. 2 Samuel chapter 9. This Saturday, we had a Trinity 101, which is our membership class. And uh, I was like, oh, let's look at First Thessalonians. And one person pulled out a Bible. I was like, what is this? And I realized everyone was just looking on their smartphone. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, the, day, the days of this are slowly, uh, are slowly fading, aren't they? Uh, that's okay. Whether you're following digitally or in old school black and white, we're looking at Second Samuel chapter 9. Let me read this for us. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. For the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and then the, then the king, excuse me, called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful uh, that you've given us your word. Lord, we thank you that your word became flesh in Jesus Christ and that through the apostles and the prophets they have proclaimed him and all that you want us to know about you. And God, that you've given us that word in scripture now that we might hear it and understand it and know it. So Lord, we pray by your spirit that you would help this text to become one that you use in our hearts, that we might become more uh, true and faithful worshipers of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, well, I wonder if anyone has ever shown you uh, an act of surprising kindness. Um, Beth and I just moved into a new place this summer, and we've been uh, very grateful for some of the surprising kindnesses that our neighbors have showed us, our new neighbors. Uh, one of my neighbors actually spent a whole Saturday morning on some hot July day helping me haul brush and branches from these couple of trees that we had cut down in front of our house uh, with a friend's truck. So he pretty much just like out of a sheer act of kindness spent all of his day just hauling these things back back and forth to the dump with me, which was something he totally didn't do. I mean, he barely knew me. Uh, so that was really surprising. Uh, and it was a real blessing to Beth and I. Um, another one of our neighbors, this neighbor actually is a member here at Trinity, was willing uh, at the drop of a hat to stay with our kids through the middle of the night while Beth and I rushed off to the hospital uh, about a month ago. Uh, so our third son, Owen, our third child, Owen, could be born. Um, These for us were sort of surprising acts of kindness and we've been really grateful for them and it's been great for us in our new neighborhood. Um, But I wonder if anyone has shown you not just a sort of uh, kind of surprising kindness, I wonder if anyone's actually shown you a life-changing act of kindness. Uh, The sort of act that leaves you fundamentally a different person. An act of kindness so radical, so unexpected, so undeserved that it actually changes you. In our text tonight, David shows a radical kindness to this man named Mephibosheth. Say that three times fast. Mephibosheth. Now remember, uh, these books of 1 and 2 Samuel are, historically speaking, all about the establishment of the monarchy in ancient Israel, right? And at the center of that story is David, the king. And it's through David that God establishes his sort of his kingdom among his people at this point in their history. So in these books, we've got a front row seat, really, to perhaps what is one of the most important themes in the whole Bible, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. And we've been asking, what's the nature of God's kingdom? And more importantly, what's the nature of the king of that kingdom? Who will rule God's people? What will he be like? These are some of the things we've been seeing throughout our series. And here in chapter 9, as we come to it, we see David, God's king, doing something that was actually very unique. Well, what's so unique about what David does here? Well, on the one hand, you have to understand the historical context. At this point in the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, David is at the height of his power. Uh, The whole nation at this point has crowned him king. He's established his throne uh, in Jerusalem, in this sort of mountain city, this stronghold of Zion. He's defeated all of Israel's surrounding enemies by this point in the story. He's created this sort of buffer zone around them so that people are enjoying peace like they've never enjoyed before. And on top of all that, if you look back at 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David that his royal house is actually going to last forever. David is at the utter height of his power. And here's what typical kings in the ancient Near East would do when they sat at the height of their power. They would eliminate nearly everything that had to do with the previous rival king's reign. In other words, they would totally clean house. Uh, I have an older brother who is in college athletics. 
Uh, he's a Division I women's volleyball coach. Uh, those things exist. They do. Uh, but he's in the SEC, which is like a big deal, right? But we're in the Northeast. We have no idea what the SEC is. So there you go. Anyway, this is what I've learned from my brother who's in college athletics. When you're at that level of the sport, do you know what happens when a new coach is hired into a program? They clean house. Uh, now, thankfully, my brother has, never, has not been the one yet who's had to clean house. Who knows? Maybe one day he will. But this new coach comes in and sets up a totally new administration. All the old assistant coaches, gone. A lot of the trainers get replaced. And you better believe that the style of play, the philosophy of the team gets totally revamped. In other words, these new coaches, these new head coaches, they clean house. And if that's true of Division I athletic coaches, multiply it by about 10,000 when it came to kings in the ancient world. When you got into your throne, you got rid of everyone and everything that belongs to the previous rival king. You got rid of his advisors, his generals, his monuments, his policies, but above all, you especially got rid of his sons and his grandsons. Maybe you would keep around an advisor. Maybe you would keep around a general or two if they actually sort of showed some kind of stunning loyalty. But any potential male heir you definitely got rid of because you didn't want any threat to your power or to your rule. New kings, at the height of their power, cleaned house. That was the gruesome reality of politics in the ancient world. So now perhaps we can see why what David does in chapter 9 is so radical. Who was Mephibosheth? Well, the story is very clear. He's the grandson of Saul, the previous king of Israel. Perhaps Mephibosheth is one of the lone remaining survivors with a legitimate claim to being Saul's heir. And he's not just any old grandson of Saul. Who is he the son of? He's the son of none other than Jonathan, Saul's sort of great son, the war hero, who was tragically cut down in battle with the Philistines. Mephibosheth is the last son of a rival rebel house. And on top of it all, the narrator tells us this interesting detail. He points it out a few times in this chapter. He tells us that Mephibosheth is permanently disabled. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, this is what you'll read. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And then he explains. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That's when Saul and Jonathan died in battle of the Philistines. And his nurse, Mephibosheth's nurse, took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. It's a very tragic story, isn't it? Fleeing out of fear that they're next, that the Philistine war machine is coming and coming for them as part of the royal house. Fearing that with Saul's death, civil war and social upheaval was ready to break out at any minute, again, targeting them, part of the royal house. They run away. And in the flight, this five-year-old boy falls and both of his feet are damaged in such a way, the narrator doesn't say exactly how, but in such a way that he's lame for the rest of his life. So here is Mephibosheth, the crippled son of a now rival rebel house. 
Now, if we were typical ancient Near Easterners, if we lived back in that day, and if we lived in a kingdom like any of the other kingdoms of that time, we would say that Mephibosheth was useless at best. After all, what good is a man in a warrior culture who's crippled in both of his feet? We would say that he was useless at best and a dead man at worst. But friends, I hope you see here in this text that God's kingdom is not at all like the kingdoms of this world. That David, in this instance at least, is not like the kings of this world. He doesn't eliminate Mephibosheth. He doesn't leave him to rot out in the hinterland of the kingdom, which is where Lodabar is, by the way. That's basically the boondocks. Uh, it's kind of funny, actually. In Hebrew, the word lo means no or not. And the word debar is sort of a general word that can mean word or thing or matter or just this. So the name Lodabar literally means no thing. This is literally nowheresville where Mephibosheth is hiding. For those of us who live in New Haven, it's like northeastern Connecticut. What actually happens up there? Do people live there? I don't know. We never go there. It's the boondocks. But what does David do with Mephibosheth? What does he do with this disabled son of a rebel house who to the eyes of the world is a useless man living in a useless place? Where does David bring him? Not just to the capital, to Jerusalem. Not just to the palace, to the king's house. But David gives him a seat at his very own table. Which if you look again at the end of verse 11, you'll see exactly what that means. It means that David is now treating Mephibosheth like one of his own sons. You know, I wonder what some of David's advisors were thinking when he did this. David, are you sure? I mean, come on, what good is this going to do you? I mean, Mephibosheth, really? You want to put a descendant of Saul's house, the king who chased you in the wilderness for years and tried to kill you, you want to put him at your table? You want to treat him like one of your own sons and let him feast like royalty? What are you thinking, David? Why? And what about some of the surrounding kingdoms outside of Jerusalem? I wonder what they would have thought when they got the news, when the article popped up on their Facebook feed or whatever they used back then. Probably MySpace. David welcomed Saul's last living heir to his own table. I wonder if they even had a category to conceive of an act like that, right? Kings were supposed to clean house, not pull up an extra seat to the table and say, come sit down. I wonder if David suddenly seemed weak to them or confused or crazy. Or did they think that David maybe had some ulterior motive? Maybe the only way they could make sense of such an act was through the lens of cynicism. Oh, David must be getting something out of this. He must have something in mind for himself. Whatever they heard, whatever they thought, this radical kindness must have seemed strange, foolish, maybe even dangerous. And you know, friends, that's exactly how many will see it today. Because don't you see, this kind of radical kindness ought to be what characterizes us today. If we profess to be a part of God's kingdom, to be a part of God's rule and reign in the world, to be under that kind of lordship, 
then we too should be a people of radical kindness. We should no longer look at people through those old lenses and through those old questions that we always ask when we're sizing each other up, when we're wondering about what we ought to do for each other. Questions like, I wonder what this person can do for me. Or I wonder how this person is useful to me or to my agenda. What do I owe this person? And what do they owe me? And what have they done to deserve my kindness? And what have they done to not deserve it? And how convenient is this going to be? Because, I mean, I've got a lot of things going on. And instead of all that, we ought to be thinking, who can I show kindness to? It doesn't matter if they deserve it. It doesn't matter if it's helpful to me or my agenda. It doesn't matter if it's convenient or not. It doesn't matter if it makes me look weak or confused or crazy to my neighbors and my friends. Who? Someone bring me someone that I can show kindness to. Because God's kingdom is a kingdom of undeserved kindness. It's a kind word to a coworker, even when they've done nothing but be irritating all week. It's a kind act to a neighbor, even though they basically ignore you most of the time. It's even a kind response to an enemy or to someone who's wronged you, even though they've never asked for forgiveness. When the world would expect us to ignore or to get even or even to clean house, the people in God's kingdom do the opposite and they show kindness. But you know, there's a problem, isn't there? I mean, we read a story like 2 Samuel 9, right? And we think, yes, this is exactly what the world needs more of, right? We need radical kindness. We need a new kingdom in the midst of the old. Yes, we love this kind of thing. And yet, and yet when I look at my own heart and I look at my own life, is that what I see flowing naturally out of me? Do I see myself extending kindness freely? Friends, I confess that more often I find myself thinking, how are they going to earn it? And what have they done for me? And more often I'm looking for something that's going to be to my benefit. Am I the only one? And if it's inconvenient, I'll make excuses. And if they've done something to offend me, well, kindness isn't what comes out, is it? They're lucky if I acknowledge they exist, let alone show them kindness. So friends, we're in this dilemma, aren't we? On the one hand, in the face of a passage like this, we see and we want to be people of this kind of radical kingdom of God sort of kindness. And we see how beautiful it is. And we imagine what it would be like if this weren't just a story long ago, but if it were something that characterized our friendships and our marriages and our neighborhoods and our churches, what if they were all shot through with this kind of unexpected, undeserved kindness being given and received? We love it and we're drawn to it. And we know that that's what we should be doing. And yet, on the other hand, we see how far we fall short in actually doing it. We're like the kid in gym class 
who on the first day of the new unit watches the video of how to shoot a basketball. And on the video, it seems so easy. You just let it go and it goes in. Boom. And the kid thinks, yeah, I got this. Then once he gets on the court and gets the ball in his hands, he's lucky to hit the backboard, let alone make a shot. You know, unlike that, unlike that kid in gym class, you know, what you and I need more when it comes to this area of kindness and extending undeserved kindness, what we need is more than just a few more days on the court and a little more practice. Because our problem runs deeper than muscle memory and good form, doesn't it? Every moralist who's ever published a book will tell you that we ought to show undeserved kindness to one another in some way, shape, or form. And yet it's still so hard. Because our problem runs down to the depths of our very hearts, you see. Down into that seemingly inescapable selfishness and self-regard that's lodged in each and every one of us. That we try to cover up and hide becomes shooting out in all sorts of ways. That inborn pattern of loving and worshiping ourselves more than anything and anyone else, that deep-seated thing within us that the Bible calls sin. And what could possibly cure us at that level? In other words, what could change our hearts? Did you notice why David showed kindness to Mephibosheth after all. He says in verse 1, for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was David's most faithful friend. Go back sometime and read 1 Samuel 18 and 19 and 20 and you'll get the story of David and Jonathan. Now you'll remember from that story that Jonathan was Saul's son, right? The heir to Saul's throne, but... Jonathan knew that God had promised David the kingdom. And as a result, Jonathan was loyal to David his entire life. Even at a critical moment, functionally saving David's life from the wrath of Saul. And now, here in our chapter, in response to the radical kindness that Jonathan showed David, and as an expression of, a, of their covenant of friendship that they shared, David, here, overthrows all the social and political expectations of his day and brings Jonathan's son to his table and treats him like his very own. In other words, David could show kindness because he had received it, you see. And now you might be saying to yourself, look, that's all fine and dandy, but I've never had a friend like Jonathan. What hope is there for me? Well, friend, there's a greater hope than you realize. Because hundreds of years after this story, in 2 Samuel chapter 9 a descendant of David would be born in Israel. But he wouldn't be born in the center of power. He would actually be born way out on the margins, out in a nowheresville called Galilee. 
And this descendant of David, this rightful king to the throne, wouldn't spend his time courting rulers and feasting with dignitaries. Instead, he surrounded himself with the poor and the weak and the lame. And he would lay his hands on them. And in some instances, he would just speak a word and their blinded eyes would open and their disabled limbs would regain their strength. And at the end of his life, this rightful king rode into Jerusalem, into the city of David, into the city of kings. And instead of being crowned the rightful king that he was, he was crucified like a common criminal. And they pinned each of his limbs to that cross and hung him up and strung him up to die like a useless, worthless piece of garbage. But it was not, you see, for anything that this king had done. He was innocent and perfectly so. The only human being who ever lived uninfected by that deep-seated selfishness that rules us all. No, this sinless king, his death wasn't because of his sin. It was in the place of sinners. It was for others. Because you and I, you see, who are we in this story of 2 Samuel chapter 9? Friends, you see, you and I are the Mephibosheths in the story. We are the children of the rebel house. We're the part of the rebel humanity who've tried to throw off God's good rule in the world that God has made. And we're the ones who are unable, not just physically, we're the ones who are unable more tragically, spiritually, to do any possible good unable to get ourselves out of the mess that we're in. But Jesus Christ, the true and better David, has lavished his kindness upon us. Kindness upon kindness by dying in our place for our sins and rising again on the third day for our justification, for our righteousness, you see. So that you and I, rebels though we are, helpless though we are, so that you and I can be welcomed to the table. And not just some table of some king who's going to live and who's going to die, but to be welcomed to the very table of God. So that through faith in Jesus Christ, we might be adopted as sons and daughters of God and know God's unending, eternal, heart-thrilling kindness for eternity. And friends, only when you see what Jesus, this true David, has done for you, only when, spiritually speaking, you see that you and I, we are all Mephibosheth, and only when you see that his kindness is extended to you, only then will your selfish heart begin to change. Only then, by putting your trust in him, will sin's power over you be broken. And only when you come into relationship with him, will you be able to show the sort of kindness that David showed here? Only then, when you receive this undeserved kindness of the true king, will your life start to take the shape that it ought to take in God's kingdom. 
Only when you come into relationship with the king will you live out the kingdom. Now in a minute we're going to go to the communion table together. We're going to share in the bread and we're going to share in the cup. And tonight if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, this one that we've been talking about, this true and better David, if you've put your trust in him as your Lord and as your Savior, then this table is the place. The Lord's Supper is the place and the time when you get to remember with all of your senses the kindness that Jesus Christ has shown to you and the way in which he's brought you into God's family by his grace and not by your works. And this table is a place where your faith can be strengthened and as your faith is strengthened and as you remember and worship through these elements Jesus and what he's done for you, in worshiping him, the Holy Spirit will work in you and make you a person more and more of the kind of radical, undeserved kindness that we've been thinking about this morning, tonight. Make you that kind of person of kindness in the world. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you're not sure, to, sure where you stand with spiritual things, then as we pass around the bread and the cup, as they come around, don't take them. Just pass the plate by. Instead, take hold through faith of the one that these symbols represent. In other words, tonight, turn to the one who is living and reigning and risen, Jesus Christ. Turn to him in prayer. Admit that you're weak and sinful. Place your trust in what he did for you on the cross for your sin and take him as your Lord. Give your life to him. That's what it means to become a Christian. To turn and trust in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And friends, as you do so, you can know that there's a place at his table for all who turn and trust in him. That none are excluded on the basis of family or ability or your past or what you have done or what you haven't done. That Jesus Christ and his kindness is ready to receive you and all of us. Now let's pray and let's prepare to go to the table together. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for this chapter in the book of 2 Samuel that gives us such a clear picture, Jesus, of your mercy and your grace. Lord, it's not a flattering picture, we confess, when we think about ourselves in the shoes of Mephibosheth. Lord, we don't often like to think that we're spiritually incapable before you. God, we want to hold onto some thread of our own righteousness and our own justification. God, I pray that you would give us hearts like Mephibosheth in this passage who could admit that he had no rights, that he had nothing to commend him to the favor of the king. Lord, help us to have that kind of humility tonight before you. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would Indeed, by your Holy Spirit, assure us of your kindness through the cross and resurrection for all who believe. So Jesus, as we go to your table now, would you feed our faith and strengthen us, we pray. Amen. Uh, We're going to sing a hymn together, uh, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let's sing this hymn as a way of preparing to share in the Lord's Supper together.